Meet Pam Hupp. On the outside, she looks like your typical middle-class Karen, but in reality, she's much worse than that. Cold-blooded, cutthroat, calculating. Choose your adjective and I'll bet Pam will still shock you. This is a woman you don't want to be alone with. Those people don't tend to live very long, especially if they have something she wants, be it an inheritance, a settlement, a scapegoat, or an alibi. Jesus, take the wheel. This is one bizarre story. I'm Amy, and this is True Crime Recaps. Our story starts in the Faria house two days after Christmas in Troy, Missouri. But the family wasn't feeling very jolly. 42-year-old Betsy was fighting terminal cancer. She was first diagnosed in 2010, but one year later, the news went from bad to worse. By December 2011, she was fighting her way through another round of chemo, struggling to get better for her husband, Russ, and her two daughters from a previous relationship. Now, in hard times, you have to lean on the people around you, your family, your friends, And for Betsy, they all rallied around her to support her in her fight, especially her good friend, Pam Hupp. The two of them met in 2001 when they worked together at State Farm. Betsy was 11 years younger than Pam, but no one could resist her bubbly personality, and the two women became fast friends. I mean, Betsy's bubbly personality, not Pam's. She's she's not bubbly. On the surface, though, she did seem like a responsible, mature woman, but there were signs that there was maybe more going on underneath. St. Louis Magazine talked to neighbors that remember getting mysterious, anonymous, mean notes and finding bloody animal bones after a squabble. Her former boss remembered Pam hinting that she had done some work with the FBI, but she couldn't say anything more about it. Eventually, she left State Farm to collect disability for some mysterious neck, back, and leg issues. In 2010, Betsy was diagnosed, and after a while, she left too. The two of them lost touch, but Pam made herself a fixture in Betsy's life after she found out about her illness. They even went door-to-door together to raise funds to help another family dealing with the disease. Pam's idea. And that family says they had no idea they were doing that, and they never got that money. But Betsy didn't know all that. She welcomed the chance to do something to help someone else. She didn't want the focus to be on her and her medical issues. Friends describe her as the most sparkly, positive person ever. She loved working with the youth at her church. She was involved with tennis. She also made meals for a local women's shelter every week. This woman was fantastic. On Tuesday, December 27th, she went to chemo, and she planned to go to her mother's house after. She was not expecting Pam to show up at her treatment session. And then, when she did show up, she insisted on driving her home, even though she had a ride sitting right there. Now, according to that witness, Betsy thanked her, but said she's all set. She's got a ride. We're all good here. And Pam left, but she didn't let it go. She met up with her at her mother's house and again insisted on driving her home. Betsy finally agreed. Now, according to court documents obtained by Dateline, Pam took her home and helped her inside, making her the last person to see her alive in the house. And as you'll soon learn, Dateline has a vested interest in this story. At 9.40, Russ came home and found his wife with a knife from their kitchen still stuck in her neck. His first thought, she killed herself. 
but autopsy reports would later show she'd been stabbed at least 55 times, so suicide was out. And even more bizarrely, her blood had been spread throughout the house. Later, much later, court documents would allege that Pam actually used her friend's socks to paint the walls with it to make it look like Russ attacked her. She's even been accused of dipping his slippers into his wife's blood and planting them in his closet. After all, it's always the husband. You said it. I've said it. I'm for sure said it. I mean, everyone says it. And that is what Pam was counting on, allegedly. The day after the murders, she was giving police Russ's possible motive, and it was all about the insurance money. Four days earlier, Betsy changed the beneficiary of her $150,000 life insurance policy from her husband to Pam. At the time, she said it was because Betsy wanted her to hold on to the money and give it to her daughters because she didn't trust Russ. But there was a second policy that gave him $100,000. So it wasn't hard for the police to come up with a theory about an angry husband driven to murder for money. Now, over a decade in the insurance industry, Pam had been fired twice for forging signatures. And everyone close to Betsy, especially Russ, was surprised to hear that she left her the money. Now, Betsy had never said a thing about it. At first, you might wonder, as we did, if she did actually sign it over to her, but apparently she did. The two of them had a librarian witness it. That woman remembered Pam, not Betsy, Pam, saying that she was getting a divorce and she wanted her daughters to have the money. So why didn't Betsy just make them the beneficiaries? Great question. Wondered the same thing. And according to testimony from one of her friends, the reason was... Well, she thought it would be better if they got the money when they were older and more responsible. At the time, they were 17 and 21. Less than a month later, Russ was arrested. Now, you would think that they might take a harder look at the person who benefited the most from Betsy's death, but Pam was never a suspect. In fact, she was the star witness against Russ. Now, during the investigation, a letter was conveniently found on Betsy's computer. It was addressed to Pam, and it talked about how Betsy was afraid of Russ. She thought he was angry with her, and she was afraid he was going to do something to her. And then it describes this death game where Russ put a pillow over his wife's face when she fell asleep on the couch so she would know what dying felt like. And as far as the insurance money went, she testified that Betsy changed her policies a lot depending on her mood. Pam also claimed that she had set up a $100,000 trust for Betsy's daughters, and she was planning to use the other $50,000 to help out the child of another friend who had also died. Now, all of that was news to everyone else in Betsy's life, but the jury ate it up. The thing that was so weird, though, about this trial is that Russ had an alibi, a good one. Four people swore he was with them watching movies, doing like a game night at the time of the murder. And as if that wasn't enough, he had a time-stamped fast food receipt backing those people's testimonies up. And as if all that wasn't enough, he was seen on security video from a gas station at the time. So how was it possible that he could have done it? After he got home and called 911, by the time that the EMTs got there, you know, just minutes later, they could tell that Betsy was in full rigor. She was, she had been gone for at least an hour, an hour and a half. Obviously, that time was when Russ was with these other people. So 
How did the prosecution convince the jury that he did it? If he planned it with his friends, that's the theory they gave the jury to explain away his alibi. They were all in it together and they were covering for each other. (laughs) Objection, your honor. But the jury never got to hear what Pam got out of all this, which meant they never had the chance to consider another suspect. So by November of 2013, Russ has been found guilty and sentenced to life plus 30 years behind bars. That same year, Pam found herself at the center of another tragedy. Her mother Shirley died in what seemed to be a freak accident. And when I say a freak accident, I mean a bizarre once in a billion year accident. On October 29th, Shirley spent the night with her daughter after she was released from the hospital. She suffered from dementia and arthritis, so hospital visits were common. At around five the next night, Pam dropped her off at her apartment and she told the assisted living staff that her mother wouldn't be coming down for dinner or breakfast the next day. They didn't think anything about it until a housekeeper found Shirley's broken body on the ground underneath her third floor balcony the next afternoon. Now get this. Somehow, the aluminum railings on her balcony had come loose. I'm not talking about the top of the railing. I'm talking about the supporting rails. So how does that happen? An autopsy showed her blood also had more than eight times the normal dose of a painkiller she was taking for a bad back. But in the end, her death was called an accident. It could have been a tragic accident. I guess, until you consider that Pam made over $120,000 from the proceeds of her mother's insurance payouts. And how on earth those aluminum railings came loose is another unanswered question. But don't expect answers anytime soon because the case was closed and despite best efforts, it hasn't been reopened. So is Pam the unluckiest woman in the world to have two people close to her die in terrible ways in the same year? both of whom happened to leave her money? I'm going to leave that for you to decide. But for now, let's go back to Russ Faria. In 2014, a year after his conviction, he was back in court, hoping to get another trial to prove his innocence. Now, it's rare for that to happen, as I'm sure you know. But in his case, new information had come out. And it came back to the insurance money that Pam was supposedly holding for his stepdaughters. Now, as you might have guessed, They never saw a dime of it, of course. And her story about why Betsy had left it to her kept changing depending on who she was talking to. In 2012, she told Betsy's sister she gave it all to charity. And at Russ's trial in 2013, she was peddling the story about how her friend had trusted her to take care of her daughters. In 2014, she told reporters it was in a trust for the girls and all they had to do was get in touch with her, which... I mean, come on, not so much. In actuality, she bought herself a house with it. So her daughters filed a lawsuit against her claiming she defrauded them out of the money. And in her deposition, she contradicted to herself again. She claimed that Betsy had given her the money to do whatever she wanted with it because she cared about her so much. And you won't believe that where this is going. So when they asked her if Betsy had said she wanted the money to go to her daughters, Pam answered, absolutely not. And then she took it a step further and said Betsy didn't want anyone in her family to have the money. She wanted Pam to have it because she loved her. Now, this is where it gets a little bit more wild. 
When they pushed her to elaborate on what she meant by love, she said, well, we were not having an affair or anything like that. We would send cards to each other that would say, love Betsy, birthday cards, things like that. But it wasn't intimate. There was not an intimate relationship. If that's, I'm not sure, but if that's what you're asking. But I know you already know that is not her final word on the subject. And the plot is definitely thickening. In addition to all the different stories Pam was telling about the insurance money, there was also the fact that the prosecutor and the lead detective were allegedly having an affair during Russ's trial, which put the credibility of the detective's testimony into question. Quick side note, the lawsuit that his stepdaughters brought against Pam, that's like an open and shut case, right? Wrong. She won mainly because the girls couldn't prove that their mom wanted them to have the money. And the only evidence was her life insurance policy with Pam as the beneficiary. So basically, the judge was like, well, I mean, it might not be right, but she can basically do whatever she wants with the money. Diabolical. Am I right? So this is the kind of thing that was making people really wonder about the role that Pam had in all of this. One person in particular was connecting the dots. Chris Hayes was a reporter with Fox News in Missouri, and it was his investigative reporting along with the St. Louis Dispatch that eventually just blew the story wide open. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Pam. She was the third of four kids in a respectable Catholic household in a middle-class suburb outside of St. Louis called Delwood. Her mom was a teacher. Her dad worked for the electric company. Her high school friends told St. Louis Magazine that she seemed nice at school. There's no drama, none of that misery that she would later wreak. She seems perfectly normal. She married right out of high school to the guy who knocked her up at her senior prom. They made it work for six years before they admitted defeat and filed for divorce. Not long after that is when she met Mark. He was playing minor league ball for the Texas Rangers, but when a major league career didn't materialize, he became a full-time carpenter and a dad to Pam's daughter, and then together they had a son. The family moved around from Florida to Missouri, and that's where she got that job at State Farm and crossed paths with Betsy Faria for the first time. Now, Mark would stay her husband through all of this, and I'll come back to him later. Now, fast forward to the summer of 2015 when Russ Faria was granted a new trial, thanks in large part to Pam's inability to keep her story straight and the prosecutor and detective's inability to keep it in their pants. Now, as the prosecutor was prepping to put him back in the hot seat for the second time, she went back to Pam to get her story again. And this time, Pam had a few new details to add because you got to keep it fresh, right? So she let it slip that Betsy had a mad crush on her. Now, here's what she actually said. She really, really, really loved me, and it just kept growing from that. She started indicating that she wanted more from me than just, you know, a friend, and I was, it's just not going to happen. I loved Betsy. I'm not in love with her, never was in love with her, but she was in love with me, and I knew she was dying, so I gave it to her. Gave it to her. Damn, lady. She said, we were drinking wine and stuff like that. She'd start crying or whatever. It wasn't that many times. It's just something I sacrificed for her because it's no big deal to me. Well, I cannot tell you how many romances start with she was dying and drinking wine, so I gave it to her. How touching. And most likely a flat-out lie since no one else in Betsy's life had ever heard of such a thing from her. And when they asked her if Russ knew, she claimed he did. 
and he wasn't into it. She said he told her he would stab her and bury her in the backyard if he saw her with his wife again. Now, before that interview, she always said that she got along fine with Russ. So it sounds like someone has been watching a lot of daytime TV. Pam also went out of her way to prove that she still had the insurance money. And here's how she did it. She brought a bag of cash to one of her prep sessions and showed it to the prosecutor. This murder trial was turning into a soap opera, and it only gets more unbelievable from here. The second trial started in November 2015. This time, the defense was allowed to push hard on the theory that Pam Hupp was so greedy to get her hands on Betsy's insurance policy that she stabbed her, and she was a strong suspect. But the prosecution stuck to their original theory. Russ was an angry husband who lashed out at his wife and took what money was left. But at this trial, they left Pam off the witness list. She changed her story one too many times, and they didn't want to give the defense the chance to cross-examine her in person. Instead, Russ's lawyers focused on bringing up the contradictory transcripts from her various interviews and her testimony from the first trial. And remember that note addressed to her that was found on Betsy's computer? Well, experts admitted that they couldn't prove who actually wrote it. And one expert testified that the file appeared to have originated on a different computer, according to the St. Louis Dispatch. And furthermore, phone records put Russ nowhere near the scene of the crime, while Pam's phone was pinging near the house for at least 30 minutes after she said she left her friend alive and well inside. So with all that, the judge set Russ free on November 6, 2015. In his words, the original investigation was rather disturbing and frankly raised more questions than answers. And you can say that again. And Russ did, loudly. Over the spring and summer of 2016, he filed lawsuits against Pam to try and get that insurance money back. And he sued the prosecutor and police for completely ignoring all the evidence proving his innocence and refusing to even consider Pam as an alternate suspect. So what with all the lawsuits and media coverage, Pam might have felt like she was going to be the next one indicted for Betsy's murder. And then something happened that seemed tailor-made to turn the attention off her. Around noon on August 16th, 2016, she called 911 to report a burglary in process. Minutes later, when the officers were on their way, she called again to report a shooting. Her story was that she was sitting in her car in her driveway when a strange man, who she had never seen before in her life, forced his way into the passenger seat, held a knife to her neck, and demanded that she drive to the bank to, quote, get Russ's money. In her story, she broke free, ran into her house, and shot him dead when he followed her inside. That man was 33-year-old Louis Gumpenberger, and his family and friends had some questions for Pam. To start with, they had no idea why Louis would be at her house or how he got there. In 2005, he suffered a traumatic brain injury in a drunk driving accident, and it left him severely disabled. He couldn't drive. He could barely stand. He had trouble gripping things, like a knife. And he lived with his mother and he couldn't work. He was basically this friendly man-child. Then all of those facts would make it almost impossible for him to do the things Pam said he did. And then there was the note they found in his pocket. 
It was full of instructions on how to get Russ's money and how to kill Pam and make it look like Betsy's murder, right down to the words, make sure knife sticking out of neck. In exchange, the note promised a $10,000 payout and Lewis had $900 in cash on him, which police think was meant to look like a down payment on this murder. But this time, the police weren't so quick to believe her when she said that she didn't plant that on him. I should also point out that the police were in a different jurisdiction. So this is a whole different team of cops. Now, Pam said she spent the morning driving around looking for thrift shops and tried to pay a visit to her daughter, who conveniently was not home. But Lewis just happened to live two miles away. When they took a hard look at her phone's location tracking, they realized she was actually in his apartment complex to pick him up. 40 minutes later, he was lifeless on the floor of her house, 13 miles away. Her story sounded like it was cooked up by a middle school student, especially when she tried to act like she didn't know anyone named Russ and had no idea why anyone would try to kidnap and kill her. In actuality, she obviously knew exactly who Russ was, and there were probably a ton of people that wanted to kidnap and kill her. And she bought the knife herself at a dollar store, then found herself a patsy in an attempt to frame him. Again. She was arrested a week later, but that wasn't the end of this drama. When the officer stepped out of the interview room, Pam hid a pin in her pocket and asked to use the bathroom, but she wasn't trying to freshen up. She used the pen to stab herself in the wrist and neck over and over, which is why she's all bandaged up in her mugshot. But there's more to this story, and it is wild. I told you Dateline has a vested interest in this case. Here's why. Six days before Lewis was found lifeless on her floor, Pam went fishing for a different victim in a trailer park on the other side of town. That's where she met Carol Alford. She was out on her porch with her dog when Pam drove by once, and then she made a U-turn and pulled into her driveway. When Carol walked over to see what this strange woman wanted, Pam asked her if she babysat. And then the conversation took an even more bizarre turn. She claimed she was a producer from Dateline, and she offered Carol $1,000 to go with her and shoot a 911 recreation segment. What the? <sighs> and get this. Pam told her she had to leave her wallet, her cell phone, and her cigarettes at home because, quote, her boss didn't like clutter on the set. Carol was skeptical but agreed to do it. But before she got in Pam's car, she grabbed two knives from her kitchen and she hid them in her sweatshirt. The thing about people like Pam is they think they're smarter than everyone else. But Carol saw right through her. They didn't get too far down the road before some gut instinct told her to get away from this woman. So she came up with an excuse to get Pam to turn around and take her home. For one thing, Carol wasn't even wearing shoes. So that was part of the reason she said she had to go back. So when they pulled up, she told Chris Hayes that Pam started to get out of the car and follow her inside. But then she noticed the security cameras on the house. When she pointed them out, Carol told her, yeah, those cameras are working. And guess what? I also have a knife in my pocket. And not even Pam was stupid enough to keep pushing it. She let her go and she drove away. Police think she pulled the same thing on Louis Gumpenberger a little less than a week later. She even gave him a script to read while she dialed 911 for real. It was almost exactly the same script that she'd been going over with Carol. 
And you have to hear how devious this woman is. If Carol hadn't caught on to her scheme, police think Pam was planning on killing her at Russ Faria's mother's house. That's the address where she told Carol they were going. It was the house she claimed that producers had rented for the reenactment. Talk about an elaborate revenge plan. I am telling you, this woman is probably running things on her cell block. And P.S., public service announcement here, Dateline would very much like you to know that they would never hire reenactment actors like this. So if you were approached by someone saying they're from the show and flashing some cash, just run. So what happened at her trial and where is Miss Pam now? Would you be surprised to learn that there was no trial? For two and a half years, the prosecution was threatening to give Pam the death penalty, so she agreed to skip the trial if they would take that off the table. But here's the really important part for her. She never admitted she was guilty. All she had to do was agree that the prosecution had enough evidence to convict. And with that, she was sentenced to life in prison without parole for what she did to Louis Gumpenberger. In March of 2020, an insurance company agreed to pay Russ $2 million for his wrongful conviction. And that same year, Pam's husband, Mark, 30-something years together, finally filed for divorce, citing the fact that the marriage was irretrievably broken because murder will do that to a relationship. But what about Betsy Faria? Well, in July 2021, Pam was finally charged with her murder, although she hasn't actually been convicted for it yet. Meanwhile, the 63-year-old woman, she's 63 now, she's doing everything she can to get out of jail. And you know that's saying something for this woman. She's tried to say that she was coerced into accepting the Alford plea deal that, you know, let her skip the trial. She's trying to say she was framed. And if this whole story sounds like it should be on TV, you're right. Renee Zellweger signed on to play the Hupster in an NBC miniseries very appropriately called The Thing About Pam. It's supposed to be coming out in early 2022. Now, I'm going to bring the popcorn, you bring the wine. And that is your recap. Thank you for spending some time with me today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you would subscribe and give this show a five-star review. It only takes a minute, but it means the world to us. Chris and I are here with new recaps every week. So until next time, take care.